This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're going to be talking about the ability of college athletes to exploit their name, image, and likeness, sometimes known as NIL rights. And we're speaking with Lori Odierno, who is head of legal and business affairs for WME Sports, a part of the Endeavor Network. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. Great to be here. And could you just kind of give us a general description about what it is that you do at WME Sports? Uh, sure. I'm the lead lawyer and business affairs negotiator across our sports division, which includes on-field representation. It's sort of one of our newer forays, um, off-field marketing representation. We represent coaches and front office executives and, and most recently uh, student athletes. So this whole phenomenon of college athletes being able to exploit and to be paid for the use of their name, image, image and likeness is, is brand new to all of us. It's a new field. And that, as I think of it, it kind of stems from that antitrust litigation against the NC2A, that a case that ultimately went up to the United States Supreme Court, that is NC2A versus Alston, where the Supreme Court didn't address name, image and likeness, but basically struck down restrictions that the NC2A had on the extent to which colleges could reimburse athletes for educational expenses. I mean, it wasn't that basically, it was kind of a narrow ruling. It was, yeah, it was, my understanding is it was an exceptionally narrow ruling and really, as you said, did not have anything to do with name, image, and likeness rights, but was really the impetus, I think, for the NCAA to see the writing on the wall, so to speak, and and really pivot in a way that I think very few in the industry expected them to. I think shortly after that decision, the NC2A just simply withdrew or abandoned its its limitations on exploitation of name, image, and likeness. Uh, was that a surprise to you and others working in this area? Yeah, I, very much so. I think it was something we all knew was coming. You know, the the California NIL legislation had been passed uh, quite a while earlier. But I call that act, you know, an act of poking the bear. Uh, I don't know that the California legislators ever really intended for that law to take effect um, so much as they intended for it to just push the NCAA into action so as to have a uniform policy and not just California doing its own thing. But yeah, I, I don't think any of us anticipated anything nearly that sweeping. And maybe we should begin by talking about exactly what name, image, and likeness, NIL rights are. I mean, what, what are we referring to here? So these are an individual's image rights. Um, it is quite literally the right to exploit your name, you know, your image, your photograph, any likeness of you. So, you know, thinking of it in the real life context, it's the ability to sell Air Jordans using the name and image of Michael Jordan. It's the ability to sell trading cards, jerseys, anything that really utilizes the, the person's name, image, or likeness in a commercial way. And so once athletes, it became possible for athletes to exploit their name, image, and likeness, how has the business and the legal framework for that evolved? My usual response to that involves a curse word that maybe I won't <laughs> use in this context, but it has been, you know, a nightmare, I guess. Not a nightmare. It's been a web of complicated and ambiguous rules and laws 
you know, frankly, with a lot at stake. I mean, you get this wrong and a kid's going to lose their ability to have a scholarship and play their sport. Um, so there is a tremendous amount at stake and the laws and the policies are absolutely, you know, in no way uniform. Many of them were clearly written by people who don't understand intellectual property rights. Um, many of them were written in a hurry to try to get, you know, an advantage in recruiting, which has turned into a disadvantage for many of those states. Some states have repealed their NIL law because they were more restrictive than the NCAA policy. So it, it's, it's a complicated and complex mess, in my opinion, that, you know, is very hard for agents to navigate, very hard for, I think, lawyers to give clear advice on because nobody knows how these laws and policies will be interpreted. Um, and frankly, very hard for student athletes to navigate. And again, they're the ones who suffer if somebody gets it wrong. I take it from what you've said that the, the rules regarding name, image, and likeness rights vary from state to state? Yes. So when the NCAA took action, NCAA, as you mentioned, effectively revoked one of its bylaws, bylaw 12, which is the bylaw that said, if you want to be a college athlete, you need to, uh, you need to establish your status as an amateur, which essentially prohibited, bylaw 12 prohibited any monetization of, you know, the student's athletic ability or reputation. And there are stories that you've heard about, you know, kids that were high school players in basketball and lost their eligibility because they were putting trick shot videos on YouTube and getting a few dollars from AdSense on Google ads and then demonetization of, uh, of their name, image, and likeness in connection with their sport. And they were deemed ineligible to play in college. So the NCAA said, basically, we're getting rid of bylaw 12 and we're going to make maybe four rules that you have to follow um, to retain your NCAA eligibility. One of those rules is you've got to follow state law. Okay. And there is no uniformity at all in the state laws. There are at last count 20 something. Well, there were 24 and then another one got repealed. I think I can't even kind of <laughs> give you a real count today, but um, 24 laws, including I think three executive orders, um, as I said, some very hastily written. And, uh, you know, there is, unlike in other areas, there is no Uniform Act. I'm hoping that our friends at the Uniform Law Commission are hard at work on a, on a Uniform Athlete Agent Act, um, but can, there can you is give us, not that one. Can you give us some idea how these different laws vary? Just, just some examples, how it might be yes. different in Texas versus California or Florida. Well, you cited a couple of good examples, John. You said you don't work in this space, but Texas and California are- uh, it, was a, it was a good guess. They're good recruiting states, obviously, <laughs> where you, you have a lot of high quality student athletes coming out of both of those states. Um, Texas and California could not be more different in their approach to NIL. Uh, the California law is pretty non-restrictive. Again, in my view, and I haven't you know, reviewed all the legislative history, but I do feel like just from what I saw from the press around government, Governor Newsom's announcement of the bill, um, it was really just to sort of to push the NCAA to act before that law became effective, in my opinion. But it's quite permissive. California is one of the few states that is very clear in its law that high school students 
are authorized to engage in NIL activity. Um, Texas is one of the handful of states that is very clear that high school students may not engage in NIL activity. You know, so that 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 is one of the current issues that is has a lot of people scratching their heads, frankly, is the status of high school students. There are literally a handful of states where it's clear one way or the other. It is clear under the NCAA policy that prospective student athletes may exploit NIL, but the high school athletic association has taken a very clear position that in states that are members of that their national association, you will lose high school eligibility if you engage in NIL activity or otherwise become a non-amateur. So, um, so that, that means that a high school student in California who by California state law would be permitted to endorse or have his, have his name on sneakers might lose his eligibility to be a high school, to compete in high school athletics? If he, in he or California, she did that. you would not. In California, you're fine. In Texas, well, in Texas, you could lose your high school eligibility and you'd be violating the law. If you were a student athlete at a high school that is a member of the state association for the sport that you play, you will lose eligibility for a year if you engage in NIL activity. But your friend or your brother or sister in private school in California can do the NIL activity with no issue. All right. Well, we've been we've been talking about high school students. What are some of the as it relates to college athletes? What are some of the legal issues that you've had to navigate in advising clients of WME? I mean, there's a we started to talk, and I I digressed a bit, I guess, on the on the differences. Um, can give you a few examples. One of the many differences is, well, one of the significant differences is in several states, you may only enter into NIL contracts that any NIL agreement you enter into can't extend beyond your collegiate eligibility. So if I'm in a state that where that's part of the law, every contract and as a lawyer for an agency every contract our contract with those student athletes and then every contract that we negotiate for those student athletes has to have an automatic ending of the term when they no longer are eligible to play their sport presumably some legislators thought that was a good idea to keep you know youngsters from getting locked up in long-term deals while while they're still in college that seems strange. You finish your senior season of uh, football, or maybe you drop out of playing football in your junior year. If there's still demand for your image, it seems strange that you shouldn't be able to continue to exploit well, that. Well, what I think, and again, it's a lot of this stuff, you know, there isn't a lot of this stuff was very quickly enacted, but my belief is that was intended to, to stop, you know, Nike from coming in and doing, I shouldn't, just call out Nike, but a, a big Whoever. brand from coming in and doing a deal with a high school kid who, you know, doesn't maybe have representation, doesn't know his value and locking him up for 10 years at a hundred thousand dollars when, you know, he gets, goes in the first round of the NBA draft and maybe he would be getting five times that amount. So, you know, there's certain States where that's a, a prohibition. There are certain States where it's not, we had an opportunity come in uh, for a client that we ended up not being right for him, but there was a um, 
there was a company that said, look, we want to make a multi-year deal with this person, student athlete, and then we're automatically going to bump the rates up if you know he enters the draft and starts playing at a pro level. It was interesting. And it turned out that that student athlete was in a state where you could do that. Um, you know, our initial reaction was, oh, we probably can't do that under state law, but you can in that particular state. The, the student athlete decided not to do that deal in the end. But uh, like, <laughs> there's always a question, you know, there, there's really no standard rules. So each time an opportunity comes in, you know, the agent has to, at least in my practice, the agent has to come to somebody in legal and go, hey, can we do a multi-year deal for this kid in this state at this school? And we have to look at the NCAA law, the state law, the school policy, and, and you know, give an educated response. I mean, is there still a role, uh, a role for college rules? Do the individual colleges or the NC2A have any rules that circumscribe in any fashion the exploitation of name, image, and likeness? Yes. So um, the NCAA, as I mentioned, they really have a few, you know, a few very simple pillars. You know, you've, you've got to comply with state law. You can't get paid for play. Um, and this is also one of the sort of tricky areas um, to navigate because all the NCAA and, and the Players Association's rules around improper inducements you know, and, and basically paying student athletes to attend a school or to be represented are still in effect. So may, those may be of, uh, in light of the uh, Alston decision, may be questionable under the antitrust laws now. But it's, you know, it's still something that, you know, as agents, we certainly have to comply with. Um, so there's a fine line between signing someone for NIL, bringing them an NIL deal and bringing them actually an inducement to sign with you for on-field representation when they graduate. So that seems, yeah, like they, a, that, that seems like it could be in some instances kind of a tough distinction. If I'm, if I'm a booster and I have a business, I'm a big yep. supporter of a particular university and that university is recruiting a student athlete from out of state that person can go to that student athlete and say, gee, I would love to offer you an NIL deal, but it only works for me if you're here attending uh, my alma mater. Yeah. So the NCAA policy is clear that contracts that are organized by boosters are okay, but they do have to be compliant with state law. They have to be compliant with school policy and they can't be an improper inducement and they cannot constitute pay for play. So, so it, in, inducement means inducement to recruit, to have the athlete attend, attend the school. school. In this context, what does pay for play mean? Pay for play means any payment that directly relates to your athletic performance. Um, so you can't say. You can't tie yeah. the royalty to the number of uh, touchdown completions. Exactly. Or, or and, like and, you know, that's been an interesting one because a lot of pro sports, a lot of brands that engage pro sports players have performance bonuses in their deals. You know, right. you win at Wimbledon, you get a bonus. You, uh, you know, you make it into the ALDS final, like you, then you'll get a bonus. Right. Um, and some of those brands have taken to just duplicating their standard contracts for student athletes. And we've had to say, no, no, no. That's one of the things that's strictly forbidden everywhere in the country. You can't get paid for performance. 
But the boosters, it's a real issue. I mean, that's a yeah, live I, issue right I, yeah, now. I, yeah, I've heard in some, at least some universities have booster clubs that I don't, I don't really understand how it works. I'd be interested to hear where they put together pools of money or something, or yep. they help, they help the athletes explore, get NIL deals. How does that work exactly? It's complicated. Um, and it is actually currently under investigation by the NCAA I think as we speak, but um, these organizations are referred to as collectives. There are different versions of this. I would say, you know, there is one version where it is, you know, it's boosters or it's a local business. You know, they are going to pay student athletes to appear or at some sort of community engagement. You know, come to the Boys and Girls Club on Saturday, everyone on the football team, and we'll give you a couple thousand dollars. Run a camp over the summer for kids who, you know, want to learn their sport and we'll give you some money for doing that. Those I, I personally would consider the lower risk version of a collective um, offering compensation to student athletes. Uh, there are other versions where you know, a large sum of money is offered to the student athlete at the outset and is paid seemingly on a regular basis with an expectation that a student athlete will perform certain services in exchange, but unclear if the student at what happens if the student athlete does not perform their, those services or would be required to actually perform them, um, which I think the, the, the latter, I would tend to believe are the ones that the NCAA has a little bit more of an issue with. Certainly if they're offered to student athletes before they join the school. So you've described to us these uh, arrangements that some booster clubs have at universities where they create opportunities, they may have a fund, or they offer opportunities to athletes to get some money, get a stipend for an event or something else. And are these offered to every athlete on the team typically, or is it only to like the stars who get these opportunities? Yeah, I don't think there's a typically. <laughs> I can say that, you know, I've, I've seen them in both in both versions. Um, there's the one where it's everyone on the team and it's the same amount and they actually have to show up and do something. And, and I put that on, on the much lower end of the scale of potential risk, uh, as I see it. At the other end of the scale is, you know, an offer to a student athlete, maybe you'll give $200,000 for the school year to the quarterback and a hundred thousand to your star linebacker recruit. That that's where I think it's a little bit more on the other end of the risk scale, in my opinion. Well, how pervasive are name, image, and likeness deals now in major college sports? You know, we see these drafts of, uh, you know, players into the NBA, uh, into the NFL. Uh, should we assume that all these players that have been drafted last year and, and will be drafted this year probably have had NIL deals when they're in college, the top ones, like rounds one, two, three? Well, if we're talking about last night's NBA draft, I can say we <laughs> represent Chet Holmgren and we represented him for NIL. We represent Jalen Williams, who I think we might not have represented for NIL. So some do and some don't. You know, basketball, people are stars in high school. Like right. it's, it's, you know, unlike some of the other sports, uh, team sports at least, you know, if you contrast basketball and football, basketball, 
agents are tracking who they want to sign when the kids are in high school. And it pretty much follows, obviously, barring injury or something. Football, somebody can pop in their senior year who, you know, he just got bigger or something and, and really found his lane. So I think in basketball, as certainly as the, this is really the first, the first full post NIL draft, you know, I, I suspect in basketball, you'll find that most of those, those top round kids have been engaging in NIL prior to the draft football, probably a mix, some who have, and some who, you know, just were kind of late bloomers and came out late. I mean, I, I would assume uh, that maybe quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, stars, the people who fans are going to read about in the newspaper week in and week out are going to have those deals. And maybe the offensive linemen and the defensive linemen, not so much. It's interesting. One of the very first campaigns, and I'm forgetting now which brand it was, but one of the very first early campaigns was involved the entire offensive line for Notre Dame. Uh -huh. uh, and, and the brand specifically chose to focus on those guys. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> uh, but that is a, you know, th there is a, one of the criticisms that I think particularly a lot of coaches have around this um, is it, it, it will alter the group dynamic, you know, sure. you've got to feel a little bit differently about your teammate, uh, captain of the team. If you know that this person is making a lot of money playing the same sport that you're playing and you're doing the blocking yeah. and tackling for this person and they're, they're getting paid in a way that you aren't. And they're rolling up to practice in a Porsche and you're driving your old beat up thing that's breaking down every other week. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, are there some programs where the entire team gets some type of NIL compensation? I, I just don't know. I can't really speak to what the schools are doing. I mean, one of the interesting parts is the school itself cannot be involved in these NIL deals. They can't be sourcing deals for the students. It's really these, you know, sort of boosters who have relationships and they might come to the school and say, hey, I want to present a deal to the entire O-line, but the schools, you know, because, you know, it could be an inducement, the schools themselves are really not supposed to be making any sort of extending any sort of NIL opportunities to the student athletes. So it's, that's where, you know, Nick Saban walks this line where he says, my quarterback's going to make $800,000 in NIL this year. Now he's not promising anyone anything. He's simply stating a fact that, and he's probably right, but that those kinds of statements in and of themselves, I think drive recruitment. Sure. Are the use of agents for college athlete NIL rights pretty pervasive, or do you see athletes trying to do deals on their own or boosters trying to do deals without using an agent? All of the above, all of the above. I mean, I think that certainly speaking for my agency, there's there are certain kinds of players that we're going to be able to activate for in a meaningful way. Um, and so there are athletes that have some national platform. You know, we we are not, there are agencies that, you know, if you're the guy in Kentucky, they've got the relationships in Kentucky or in this city or that, you know, we're looking at a little bit more of a national level. So there are, you know, there's a certain lane of players who are going to be represented by our agency. There's another lane of player. So there's kind of, there are agencies at all different levels. And then there are some players, you know, who just 
are going to take the opportunities directly. They're really not going to have representation. Some work with specifically just with a lawyer. Most of the state laws say that you can have representation, either an athlete agent that complies with the athlete agent law in the state or an attorney who is licensed in the state. But it, it's really all over the place. I know you wouldn't want to be uh, giving legal advice on this uh, <laughs> podcast, but are there some things that you could say to college athletes or prospective college athletes who might be interested in exploring the possibility of exploiting their name, image, and likeness? Any sort of general thoughts that you could give about things they should be on the lookout for or that they should expect or how to go about pursuing that? Yeah, one, I would say be careful um, because, you know, there are, as I said, the, the, the consequence of getting it wrong is you could lose your scholarship and you could not be able to play your sport in school. So there are really meaningful consequences. You got to read your school policy, talk to your AD's office um, and go to them. I mean, we, we encourage as a best practice, you know, before we do a deal, let's talk to the AD's office and just make sure there isn't because several of these laws prohibit student athletes from doing deals that conflict with the school's deals. So, you know, when in doubt, disclose and get clearance. But I do think, I mean, my other advice is don't let it, don't let it get in the way of being an athlete and more importantly, being a student. I suspect some organization will come out with a study on uh, the impact on student athletes' grades of NIL. I'm waiting for that one. But um, yeah, I, I'd say be careful and really lean on your compliance office. I mean, I spoke at, in a class at UCLA, a lot, a lot of school, I don't know if it's a lot, but UCLA Law School has a program, pilot program, where they are teaching a small group of kids uh, with help from some adjunct professors how to negotiate these deals and how to advise on these deals. And then those students are operating a clinic for UCLA student athletes who don't have representation and, and are advising on you know, how to navigate these opportunities, which I think is amazing. It, it's just, yep. it's an amazing concept. So, you know, there are where there are programs like that, they should, you know, but if they're it, just talking to your compliance office is, I think, key because um, they really can help you. Well, that all sounds like really good advice. Lori, thank you so much for joining us on Law Disrupted. We really appreciate it. Fascinating program. Thank you, John. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.